0: When I went to bed last Tuesday night, trade deadline stories dominated Major League Baseball news. But that wasn't the case when I woke up Wednesday. What was it that brought about such a change? Welcome to In the Bullpen with Mark Dewey, sponsored by Developing Contenders Ministries. You're listening to the Fight Laugh, Feast Network. Thank you for joining us. And look who's coming up. High fly ball
1: into right field. She is gone!
0: It may not have been the wildest straight line in Major League Baseball history, but it was both busy and exciting. And I want to get into some of the details of that deadline, some of the things that did happen before 6 p.m. Eastern last Tuesday. But before that, I need to get to something else. As I mentioned, when I went to bed Tuesday night, I was reading the stories and they all had to do with the trades that took place. But when I woke up on Wednesday morning and then when I went to MLB.com, I noticed that in their feed, there were four stories that came before the first trade headline story. The trade headline story read, Padres land Soto Bell in Blockbuster. It's going to be fun. But there were four stories before that, four headlines. I guess I shouldn't say four stories because it was really one story. One story about one person. And you know that to displace the news that quickly at that time means it's a very special story. More accurately a very special person. The four headlines read this way, Vin Scully, legendary broadcaster, dies at 94. Hear Vin Scully's most legendary calls. Best there ever was, Dodgers fondly recall Scully. And then finally, baseball world mourns loss of Vin Scully. For a while now, at least probably a year and a half, maybe two years, I have something in my notes that I may use to devote a whole episode to. It was a ranking, and I think it was about 10 years ago or so, of the top 15 broadcasters in MLB history. And I want to use it, and I'm going to probably just do the top 10. And by the way, with Vin Scully dying, of those top 15, only one man still remains alive. And that person is actually still broadcasting. Do you know who that is? Think about it because I think if it doesn't come to your mind immediately, you'll figure it out. But I'm going to use their top 10 list because I'm not going to debate. I don't think I'm capable or qualified of debating numbers three through 10. What I was most concerned about is they got number one and number two correct. Number two on their list is Ernie Harwell. I grew up in West Michigan. I grew up a Tigers fan. I grew up most every night of the summer, from August to October, and on the good years beyond October, listening to Ernie Harwell broadcast Tiger games on the radio. And if he had been ranked anywhere but number two, I would have a serious issue. But he's ranked number two. And the one person that deserves to be ranked ahead of him, in my opinion and I think in most people's opinion, is Vin Scully. And he is indeed in this considered the best baseball broadcaster in history. Carl Ravich of ESPN tweeted these words out after hearing of Vin Scully's death. Vin Scully is the bar no one in our profession will ever reach. Graceful, eloquent, a storyteller with the ability to pilot passengers on an unforgettable journey without leaving the couch. He painted with words, and each game was a masterpiece. Here's a man, Carl Ravitch, who's been doing this and doing it well for decades. And I think most, if not every, broadcaster would agree with those words that he tweeted out about Vin Scully. Now, I mentioned that one of the headlines had to do with his most legendary calls. That is, the most legendary calls of Vin Scully in his broadcasting career. A career that lasted 67 years with the Dodgers. He was with the Dodgers in Brooklyn beginning in 1950, made the trip across country to LA, and continued his career. Think about that. 67 years as the broadcaster for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Here is only a small sampling of his legendary calls
1: hi everybody and a very pleasant tuesday evening to you wherever you may be and a very pleasant evening to you wherever you may be down here we would greet you by saying good mike fastball is a high drive into deep left center field buckner goes back to the fan city gone At ten minutes after nine, in Atlanta, Georgia, Henry Aaron has eclipsed the mark set by Babe Ruth. Three and two to Mookie Wilson. Little roller up along first, behind the bag! Pitch to Larkin. One on a hard fly ball into left center, and the Minnesota Twins are the champions of the world. And the Toronto Blue Jays come back with three in the bottom of the ninth inning to become the world's champions yet again. And the Atlanta Braves are the champions of the world.
0: Again, those are just a few of his legendary calls. And as you heard, many of those did not have to do with the Dodgers. And that is because even though for 67 years he was the broadcaster for the Los Angeles while Brooklyn and then Los Angeles Dodgers, he broadcast many other games. National games, playoff games, World Series games. As a matter of fact, he broadcast more than just the game of baseball. And Vin Scully was a master storyteller of the game, of the people in the game, of other sports as well. And he also told great stories from his own life. I was uh, pretty young. I must have been, I would say, about 13. And there he was, the way you would imagine him. There was Babe Ruth, and I can see and hear him now. Just a minute, just a minute. And he reached into one of the side pockets of that camel hair coat, and he took out what I would say was a stack of business cards. They were blank on one side, And on the other side was a stamped Babe Ruth signature. He just handed out the business card. And you might say, did you get one? You bet I did. There you hear how great of a storyteller he is and what a great story that was to tell of him meeting Babe Ruth. Now, we talked about his legendary calls, There was a poll done to vote on his greatest call. And if I'm not mistaken, it is considered the greatest call in baseball history. And you actually hear that call each week in my intro. Actually, you hear a small snippet of that call each week. Here is a fuller version of that call that took place game one of the 1988 World Series Oakland A's at Los Angeles and Dodger Stadium against the Dodgers.
1: Look who's coming up. the fire and all year long he answered the demands until he was physically unable to start tonight with two bad legs the bad left hamstring and the swollen right knee and with two out you talk about a roll of the dice this is it if he hits the ball on the ground I would imagine he would be running 50% to first base, so the Dodgers trying to catch lightning right now. Sacks waiting on deck, but the game right now is at the plate. the impossible has happened
0: now I don't believe that in any of the episodes of In the Bullpen I have used an audio um, clip longer than that one and let me tell you this that clip is an extended clip compared to what I play in my intro but it is still edited Gibby fell behind Dennis Ackersley immediately 0-2 worked the count back to 3-2 before he hit the home run All of that was eliminated. But more so than that, there is more that you need to listen to. There is a a more extended clip. In other words, before Gibby ever came out of the dugout, you need to go back, you need to find it online, listen to Vin Scully well before Gibson knows, or, or Vin Scully knows that Gibby is going to hit. If you have never heard it, you will be very grateful that I encouraged you to do so. If you have heard it, you'll be grateful that you listened to it yet a second time. Now, why did I play that clip as long as it was? Well, it's a great clip, obviously. It's a great call. But also, I wanted you to notice a couple of things. First of all, I'm, I'm confident you noticed how beautifully and poetically and all of that Vin Scully described what was going on. But you may have also noticed how often Vin Scully did not speak throughout that clip. I think the clip was like 2 minutes and 46 seconds. As a matter of fact, after he said, She is gone... One minute and eight seconds elapsed before Vin Scully said anything again. So here is a man who spoke so masterfully, who painted a picture so beautifully, and also knew when to speak and when to be silent. That's a gift. It's a gift from God. And he was familiar with the one true God and the Word of God. And I believe that Vince Scully on and off the air exhibited James 1.19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. I believe Vince Scully embraced that and lived that. And I think he made application of that in his broadcasting. He even says so himself, not quoting from James, but he says this. I try to call the play as quickly as I possibly can and then shut up and let the crowd roar, because to me, the crowd is the most wonderful thing in the whole world when it's making noise. Jeff Passan of ESPN recognizes how well Vin Scully did this. He tweeted out these words. Vin Scully was a storyteller, and nobody ever told the story of baseball better. He called games with such elegance and grace. He spoke only when necessary, allowing the broadcast to breathe when it demanded. He made baseball a more beautiful game. R.I.P. A couple of things about those last three letters. First of all, I always enjoy seeing Christian vestiges in our culture. But secondly, I trust that Vin Scully, who was not at all ashamed of declaring that he was trying to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and commune with God and live for his glory, that he is resting in peace in and with his Savior. There was and still is a universal love and respect for Vin Scully. And it is, it is really amazing, but also understandable how beloved he was on this earth and how people are missing him in the weeks since he died. And I believe that's because as a master storyteller, Vin Scully reflected the image of God who is the master storyteller. And as a man, again, on air and off air, Vin Scully exhibited the characteristics of a follower of Jesus Christ. One of the people I immediately thought about when I read the story of Vin Scully was Ned Colletti, And I had him in the bullpen back in July of 2020. Ned has known Vin Scully for decades, spent a lot of time around Vin Scully, and I remember in the podcast, toward the end of that podcast with Ned Colletti that he was talking about his classes that he would teach at Pepperdine, and he said at the end of the first class, he would say, okay, now, what I'm about to say is not a part of the curriculum of this class as such, but it is a part of the curriculum of life. And then he said, I want to say three words to you. He says this to the students, kindness, gratitude, and grace. And he goes on and he says, exhibit kindness, realize and appreciate life, exhibit grace to others. And as you do so, you will make your life better and help others to do the same. I believe Ned Coletti would say that that sums up the life of Vin Scully exceptionally well. And we need to be thankful to God that he provided us with such a man and with such a master storyteller to describe the game and the players of the game, which is the best game in the world. I could devote this entire episode to Vin Scully. I could devote an entire season of episodes to Vin Scully. But we have to move on. Although I want to say this. Go online, go to social media, just listen to various things because there's one clip in the middle of play-by-play in a game where he very simply, succinctly, quickly, and clearly denounced and demolished socialism. It's great. But now let's get to the trade deadline. I think everybody, like everybody agrees, Vin Scully is the greatest baseball broadcaster ever, ever. I think everybody agrees that the big winners at the trade deadline were the San Diego Padres. First of all, on Monday in, in, a, in a trade that I think shocked virtually everybody. I know it shocked a lot of people that are fans of the Milwaukee Brewers. It shocked a lot of people that get dressed in the clubhouse, players of the Milwaukee Brewers when they traded Josh Hader to the Padres. Then on Tuesday before the deadline, the Padres get Juan Soto and Josh Bell. Now they had to give up a lot. They gave up five of their 11 top or, or their top 11 prospects. But look at what they got. The best closer in baseball, the best young player, and you know, everybody says he's a surefire Hall of Famer. That's true if he can have the career that, that lasts 10, 12, 15 years. But nonetheless, the best young player, one of the best players, maybe well, yeah, one of the best players in baseball, they get him and Josh Bell, who's no slouch. And whenever Tatis Jr. comes back, and right now he's down in the minor leagues on rehab, it's likely it will be Tatis Jr. Machado, Soto, and Bell as their one through four hitters. Wow, that's going to be something. But I want to give us all a caution. And I was thinking this even on Wednesday, because as I'm listening to the reaction to this trade, I'm hearing people saying, nope, the Padres now are in the playoffs and they are going to be one of the top contenders to win the World Series, which would be the first time in franchise history. And even back Wednesday, I'm like, whoa, 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 slow down here. Juan Soto is great. They made great trades. Josh Hader is great. But slow down. Don't write them into the playoffs already. And don't anticipate that they may be one of the top two or three teams to contend for the World Series. Now, on Wednesday, the Padres won. But since then, they lost four in a row. They've been swept in the past three games by the Dodgers. Now, as it regards Josh Hader, of course, the Padres got him. The Brewers don't have him. As I mentioned, a lot of people were shocked, including people that pitch and play for the Brewers. After trading Hayter, the Brewers were immediately swept by the Pittsburgh Pirates and then lost two of three games to the Reds. So the team that came out so hot after the All-Star break trades their closer and right now has been in a nosedive. But if we're talking about the trade deadline, I think the Brewers... I don't know who they got. I don't know how those players will pan out. But I would say they were losers, at least for this year in trading away Josh Hader. But if you talk about the Padres being the biggest winner, and I think most people would agree, I want to make the argument that the second biggest winner at the trade line would actually be the Cincinnati Reds. And I'm not alone in this. Now, I don't know if anybody would argue second, but there are those who would say they were big winners. Ben Verlander thought so. He tweeted out, remember... Sellers can be winners too. The Cincinnati Reds are big-time winners at the deadline. And then I heard a discussion on the Baseball Tonight podcast, which was Tuesday evening after the deadline, in which this conversation was brought up by Jeff Passan.
1: Cincinnati Reds are not a really good team, but it seems like they had a really good, uh, really
0: good uh, deal-making leading up to the deadline. Did
1: they have the second-best deadline? Can you ar- can you argue that they position themselves? Yeah, you so could argue well that. No, them? I don't want to do because we don't know where it leads. <laughs> we don't. And, and and listen, I understand that that their prospects. They did extremely well in the Luis Castillo deal. They did extremely well in the Tyler Malley deal. Um, they did well in the Brandon Drury deal. You know, I think there's a lot of credit deserved uh, for timing them right. Like they jumped on Castillo early. And they understood that Seattle was either going to go and get Frankie Montas or go and get Luis Castillo. And Seattle knew that the price on Montas was going to be high, and so they said, we, we like Castillo best, and we are willing to pay what it takes to get him because we believe that we're a playoff team with him. So credit to Cincinnati, which has a vastly improved farm system. And already in Ellie De La Cruz who is six foot five and two hundred pounds and hit a ball five hundred twelve feet last week? Has a guy who may, within the next year, be a top five prospect in the entire game.
0: So while the Padres and just to, uh, to mention, Jeff Passan backed off the second second best uh, uh, biggest winner at the trade deadline, but nonetheless he brought it up. But while the Padres are anticipating a quick return for the trades they made, the Reds are looking more down the road. And it's been a rough year, although I will say this, after their horrendous start, they've played right around 500 baseball. But they're looking to be a contender in the National League Central down the road. And Reds fans, though, again, not a lot to be excited about this year. I think they do have some things to be excited about as it regards the future. One piece of the future, a huge piece of the future, which has also brought excitement to Red fans this year, is Hunter Green. And uh, a listener of this podcast sent me this on August 2nd, trade deadline day. And it said that Hunter Green is the only MLB rookie in the modern era to have three games in which he threw six or more innings, had eight or more strikeouts, and did not give up more than one hit. He did that on May 15th, June 6th, and August 2nd. And then they go on to, to acknowledge that no pitcher, rookie or otherwise, has had more than three those games like that in a season. Nobody. And he has three by August 2nd. Now, since that was sent to me, Hunter Green has been placed on the injured list for the Reds. He has shoulder issues. It appears it will not require surgery. And if you're a fan of the Reds, and I think if you're a fan of baseball, you have to hope that it does not. Now, I got to see Hunter Green pitch in his first season in Pro Bowl when he was in Billings. And so did a lot of fans in Billings, Montana, or throughout what was at that time, well, it still is the Pioneer League, but at that time, a league in affiliated baseball, which leads me to something I've brought up on occasion, but I want to bring it up again and delve just a little bit deeper into it. I want to encourage you to go to minor league baseball games, especially if you have a minor league baseball team in the town in which you live or very close to it. And if you have one in the town in which you live, I would say go often, even consider going to all or at least most of the home games for a whole season or two. The cost is very reasonable. I mentioned that in May, I went to a West Michigan Whitecaps game in Grand Rapids. High A ball. It cost me $10 to get in. This past weekend, I was up in the Columbus area and somebody there told me that they went to a Columbus Clippers game, AAA level, and also it cost $10 to get in the game. That is very reasonable. And the talent that you can see in low A, high A, double A, or triple A, can be remarkable. Think about all those people in Billings that saw Hunter Green back in, I can't remember what year it was now, 2017 maybe. Think about all the players that you maybe hadn't heard about at all until this trade deadline, where all of these players are the guys going from the Padres to the Nationals for a player like Juan Soto. Let me tell you something that hopefully will encourage you this way. So I spent the 2012 and 2013 seasons as a pitching coach in Brevard County. So it was the Florida State League at that time, high A ball. It's a very good league. Here are some players that I saw just in that two-year period of time. First of all, with Brevard, the team that I coached for. Position players that ended up playing in the major leagues. Jason Rogers, Yadiel Rivera, Nick Ramirez, who at that time was a power-hitting first baseman, but pitched in the big leagues as a left-handed reliever. And then the name that probably is familiar to most of you, Mitch Haniger. But here are some names, and this is not a complete list, excuse me, of players that were in that league. Javi Baez, Chris Bryant, Nick Castellanos, Gary Sanchez, Marcel Azuna, JT Realmuto, Christian Yelich, Byron Buxton, and then pitchers. Pitchers that pitched for Brevard County that played in the big leagues Taylor Youngman, Jed Bradley, David Goldforth, Hiram Burgos, Tyler Cravey, Jacob Barnes, Drew Gagneau, Brent Suter, and Jimmy Nelson. And then pitchers from other teams Seth Maness, Aaron Sanchez, Jamison Tyon, Jose Fernandez, Noah Sindergaard, and Garrett Cole. And that's just great players you also have the opportunity of meeting and actually getting to know minor league players in a way that is almost impossible with major leaguers. And you will meet some guys that maybe, maybe, maybe never get out of low A or high A or whatever it might be, but you will finally recall what great people they were and what a great opportunity it was to get to know them. Now, everything didn't happen or all the news didn't end Tuesday with the trade deadline. With after the trade deadline, Jacob deGrom making his first start in well over a year for the Mets, and the news of Vin Scully. A lot of things took place since then. Just a few things that I want to touch on. The St. Louis Cardinals swept the New York Yankees. First time in history. Of course, they haven't played that often. But the Cardinals have now won five straight. I'm sorry, the Yankees have lost five straight. The Cardinals have won seven straight. And they now lead the Brewers in the NL Central by two games. The Phillies just got done with a four-game sweep of the Washington Nationals. They have won five in a row. They are now second in the NL wildcard. They're three back of the Braves. They're a half game up over the Padres. I mentioned that L.A., the Dodgers, swept the Padres, but the Dodgers have also won eight in a row, and they now lead their division by 15 and a half games. Here's something that is very important to me. Sweet Lou. Lou Whitaker had his number retired, number one, by the Detroit Tigers. And I believe Lou Whitaker belongs in the Hall of Fame. And Jacob DeGrom made his second start back yesterday. And in doing so, he helped the Mets complete their sweep of the Braves. And they now have a lead of six and a half games. And yesterday, he went five and two thirds, gave up only one hit. It was a home run. Two runs, one walk, 12 strikeouts. And in the fourth inning, he struck out Dansby Swanson and set a record.
1: 2-2 to Swanson.
0: Struck him out! And there's the record. 1,518 strikeouts for Jacob deGrom, the most ever for a pitcher in his first 200 Major League starts. Impressive, obviously, and that's why people think that when he is healthy, he is the best pitcher in baseball. I saw a video of him warming up for that game. So he's out there, Mets are in the field, top of the first, Dansby Swanson's getting ready to hit, Jacob is throwing his eight warm-up pitches, and blasting through the speakers is Simple Man by Leonard Skinner. Well, it's Skinner. That's a great song by Skinner, and so it's like, yeah. And somebody posted this and commented, chills. And I can't argue with that. But then I saw another video. It was about another Mets pitcher. Another Mets pitcher not warming up for the game, but coming into the game. Hard to hear at the end, but that was Edwin Diaz coming into a game for the Mets. And the music started playing as he was taking a slow walk through the pen. Maybe not as slow as Lee Smith, but nonetheless, a slow walk through the pen. And then as he walks onto the outfield warning track, the music really kicks in. And then he starts his jog. Slow enough to show that he's cool, calm, and in control. Fast enough to show I'm coming to get you. It's really great to watch. You need to check it out. And the caption under the video that I saw read this way, Edwin Diaz has the best entrance in the game. And I'll have to admit, it's hard to argue with that statement. However, I believe my 13-year-old son Amos could actually have a walk-up song that would challenge for the title. But that's a conversation for another day. Join us next time for In the Bullpen on the Fight Laugh Feast Network. Thank you for listening.